Psalm 116. My singing voice may not have been very pleasant to listen to there. I apologize. We've been sick uh, all week and kind of got this cold ear throat thing going on. So we thought, Michelle and I thought we were sick Tuesday and Wednesday, and then we woke up Thursday and Friday. So uh, she's at home with Charlotte this morning, and uh, I appreciate your putting up with me uh, and, and the way that I sound a little bit sick this morning. So thanks for bearing with me. Psalm 116, as we prepare for the table, a wonderful psalm uh, that allows us to do so. Let us hear from God uh, this wonderful song inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us for our good. So let's give our attention to its reading. Psalm 116, found on page 955, if you're using the Pew Bible. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and Call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people and in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. God has heard our cry. God has heard our pleas for mercy. It's a wonderful truth. And if you're anything like me, You wish that you could live each and every moment with the deepest sense of realization about this truth. God has heard my cry. He has heard my pleas for mercy. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the midst of God's people on Sunday singing praises to him or hearing his word preached. And I'm thinking to myself, I wish I could live each and every moment this aware of God's goodness, this aware of God's mercy and grace. But Sunday morning often gives way to Tuesday afternoon. Our lively and loving hearts towards God often turn into feeling more like a valley of dry bones. And so our weak and our frail human nature 
tends to forget the goodness of God. And there are all kinds of things that we need to do, all kinds of things we need to be mindful of that God can preserve us from falling back into unthankfulness, falling back into forgetting God's goodness and falling into patterns of sinful living. Our foundational truth from Psalm 116 that I'd like us to consider today is this. The deeper we grow in understanding and treasuring the mercy and the grace of God, the more our lives will overflow in thankful praise. The deeper we grow in understanding and treasuring the mercy and the grace of God, the more our lives will overflow in thankful praise. That's the the life we're going for, a life of thankful praise, which is centered around the truths of the gospel and understands the nature of salvation that God gives to us in his son, a life of thankful praise in light of that. But here's our life-transforming reality this morning from Psalm 116. Our weaknesses, our tendency to forget, our fleshly tendencies to forget must be countered by a routine repetition of Reminders, a lot of R's there. I'm going to have a lot more R's by the end of this sermon, so just buckle up. A routine repetition of reminders on the nature of salvation that transform us from restlessness or doubt or wandering to thankful praise. If we remind ourselves of the goodness of God, our lives can be transformed to thankful praise and living in light of all that he has done for us. So the first reminder that can transform us to thankful praise is this. Revere the God who loves you. Revere the God who loves you. By revere, what I mean is is very similar to love. But reverential love is a love that understands that someone higher than us has bestowed his love upon us. And that is what God has done. We do not approach God as our peer. He is... He is higher than us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, he comes down and condescends to love us. So revere the God who loves you. The psalmist begins here by declaring his love. I love the Lord, in verse 1. Or I love Yahweh. But look at how his love is rooted in God's activity towards him. I love the Lord because he has done something. He has heard my voice. He has heard my cry for mercy. So it's not the action of the psalmist that initiates this relationship of love with God. It is the action of God that initiates this relationship of love. I'm going to steal our intern's thunder here by referencing 1 John. Just shortly, Nathan, so forgive me. 1 John chapter 4, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. See, the foundation, what forms the foundation of being joined to God in a fellowship of covenantal love is his activity and not ours. We could reference 1 John again. See the manner of love. See what kind of love with which the Father has loved us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We become God's children because of the initiation of God's love. Deuteronomy chapter 7 speaks about this in wonderful terms. God says, I loved Israel not because they were so great, not because they were so many, not because they were so righteous. I set my love upon them because I loved them. 
If you were to ask a husband why he loves his wife, hopefully there's some aspect of mystery to it. Why, why do you love this one woman above all others in the world? Hopefully the husband won't say something like, well, I took a look around and I kind of saw her as the most deserving of my love, so I set my love upon her. No. A good, loving husband says something like, I love her because I love her. There's an aspect of mystery to it. And God says to Israel, to his people, I love you because I loved you. Reverence and worship of God must be seen in God's initiation towards us. Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. I chose you. Ephesians chapter 1 says that in love, God predestined us for adoption. God takes that step and initiates this relationship of love. And we need to remember that, that we can be joined in a relationship of the God of the universe because he steps towards us, because he loved us first. I love the Lord because he has heard my cry. Secondly, this, revere the God who loves you. Secondly, remember your helpless state of sin. Remember your helpless state of sin. Look with me at verse 3. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. This is a pretty thorough description of helplessness, isn't it? The psalmist knows he can do nothing to get himself out of this situation. So it's no wonder that verse 4 follows with crying out for God's mercy. O Lord, save me. It's strange, isn't it, that we can live in a country that is sort of regarded as, uh, in many ways, a, a Christian country, or at least populated with many Christians. Every time I've seen a poll go out to the American public about phrases or sayings that they think are in the scriptures, one of the ones that is towards the top of the list is, of course, God helps those who help themselves. There's a lot of irony in that because the message of scripture from beginning to end is completely the opposite. First of all, why would God help those who need no help? God helps those who help themselves, those who don't need his help. That's who he helps. That doesn't make sense. But then the message of Scripture is, of course, from beginning to end, God helps those who cannot help themselves for exactly that reason. This is what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, hasn't it? It's the motif of the Pharisees on the one hand and the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the tax collectors, and the sinners on the other. The Pharisees believe they're helping themselves. The Pharisees believe that they're propping up their righteousness before God. They believe they themselves are achieving something that God will see as saving and righteous and good and holy. Time after time, people come to Jesus in the gospel, having tried every other remedy, having tried every other way of life, and they know that they are in a helpless state of sin, and they come to him in faith, and Jesus accepts them because of their faith. So, brother and sister, remember that your sin made you helpless. That because of your sin, you had to cry out to God. That you couldn't get out of the pit yourself. He needed to reach down and pull you out and set your feet on a rock. You can imagine a psalm like this or something like it. In uh, In the mind of hymn writer Henry Francis Light, when he wrote these words, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail 
and comforts flee. Help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. God is the helper for the helpless. Remember that. Remember your helpless state of sin. Thirdly, rejoice in the God who saves. Rejoice in the God who saves. It's not just knowing. It's not just having that idea in your mind. It is rejoicing in the God who saves you. God said, what, I will be your God and you will be my people. God isn't forming and creating a bunch of bare thoughts or ideas about himself. He is forming a people who are united in head and heart and hands. That's what we're going for, to know the truths of God's gospel in our heads, to treasure it in our hearts, and to have that overflow in a life of thankful praise in our hands. Rejoice in the God who saves you. Verses 5 and 6 show exactly this kind of progression. Verse 5 says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. God is full of compassion, which is a wonderful statement. Sounds a lot like Psalm 103. Great is the Lord, full of kind compassion. We sang those words this morning. But it's stated in a general way. So look at how it develops in verse 6. It goes from general to stating it in a relational way. What kinds of people does God relate to? The Lord protects the simple-hearted. So it goes from a general truth to a relational truth. You won't be surprised to find out that this word simple-hearted is someone who could be easily exploited, easily led astray, easily taken advantage of. This is the kind of person that the Lord protects, that the Lord guards, that the Lord defends. General to relational to then at the end of verse 6, it's stated in a personal way. When I was in great need, he saved me. So that's the lesson for us to learn for a life of thankful praise, is that we need to have these truths about who God is, a God who saves, a God who forgives. And then we need to understand how those general truths about God, those wonderful and glorious truths, how how they bring him to a state of relating to certain people, and then how it becomes personal to us. When I was in great need, the Lord saved me. Christ died to save sinners, yes. But did Christ die to save you? If it will be transformative in our own lives, if it would be much more meaningful, we need to see how those truths touch upon our own lives. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Psalm 13 says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. With me. Rejoice in the God who saves. Rejoice in the God who saves you. Fourthly, rest in grace. Rest in grace. Psalm 116, verse 7, a wonderful verse. It's actually a wonderful verse uh, to memorize and to have with you all of the time. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Our human hearts, what, are, what do they make us to be? They make us to be status and achievement addicts. We become addicted to status and achievement. Or perhaps if we see that that's not really working out for us, we can despair, we can be sorrowful because we see in ourselves an inability to achieve the standard of achievement that we would like for ourselves and for our lives. 
And that's why the gospel works against all of those sinful tendencies in our hearts. That spiritually, ultimately, the most important person, the most important being to whom we can relate, our God, our covenant king, our creator, he saves us, he allows us to relate to him out of his grace. See, the gospel grants rest. It's Christ who is our righteousness. It's Christ who has achieved all of the righteous standards which we must attain if we are to be with God forever. It's Christ's blood that forgives us of all of our sins. So hear that gospel, that good news this morning. Hear that we can never achieve that which we would need before God in order for him to grant us eternal life. He says, come to the waters of grace. Come to Jesus Christ and see in him all that you would need, all of the achievement, all of the status that you would need before me. Trust in him. His blood covers your sins. His life speaks for you. His righteousness is all that you need. Rest in grace. We can only rest in him. There's a strong connection between Psalm 116, verse 7, and Matthew chapter 11, which we read for our call to worship this morning when Jesus says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Rest in grace. Fifthly, recount the mighty deeds of God. Recount the mighty deeds of God. We read about God granting us mercy, God saving us, and so we think, well, this psalm probably points us to Christ in this way. Uh, We're we're granted salvation and mercy and grace because of Christ. This psalm speaks of salvation and mercy and grace, so it points us to Christ. But it actually does it in a much more meaningful, much more magnificent way. It does do that, but it brings us into the work of Christ in a truly marvelous way. First, it's important to understand that Jesus probably sang this psalm on the night on which he was betrayed. This, is, this psalm is part of the great Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, which are sang at the Passover celebration. So we read in, in the gospel accounts that Jesus and his disciples sang a psalm and they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Very likely that it's speaking about this psalm and also very likely that Jesus sang this psalm on the night that he was betrayed. But there's also something about the psalms that bring us into the work of Christ and allow us to to uh, meditate on the work of Christ, to realize the sufferings of Christ even more. Because the Psalms are not just songs that we sing about God or about Christ. They are songs, inspired songs, that we sing with Christ. These are the songs that he sings as the anointed king of his people. You ever notice that all the Psalms are given to us from that perspective, the perspective of the anointed king? The anointed one who often suffers personal hurt, who suffers because of the unrighteousness and the sins of others. So this psalm brings us into the sufferings of Christ in his human nature. It opens that up for us. It opens up how salvation is won for us by our suffering king. Look at verses 10 and 11. I am greatly afflicted. In my dismay, I said, all men are Liars. And so here we see those two main components of suffering in the Psalms. Suffering personal hurt and suffering because of the sins and the unrighteousness of others. Jesus Christ suffered for us and he did so willingly. He did so willingly. Remember in John chapter 10, we read that last Sunday, 
where Jesus says, I lay down my life of my own authority. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. See, only Jesus can say that because only he has the power and the authority to truly lay down his life. But Jesus is the only one who can truly say that he is suffering because of the unrighteousness of others, because of the sins of others at every moment, at every moment, not just the religious leaders of Israel, not just the political leaders of Rome. Jesus also suffers because of the empty words of his disciples. Remember when Jesus gives the call to discipleship. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. And who is standing with Jesus at the end of the gospel stories? Who has followed him each and every moment perfectly at the standard at which he sets? No one. No one. So the Gospels portray for us that when Jesus gets to Golgotha, when he gets to the, the, the final place of his road of suffering, he is standing alone. And he is doing so so that we remember and we can be reminded that it is Christ alone who saves us. It is Christ alone who saves us. It is through Christ We are saved, not through our ascent to God, but through the Son's descent from heaven, from heaven's glory down to earth. He suffered the anguish of the Father's hellish wrath on the cross. He descended to hell for us when he was crucified and dead and buried. He underwent all of the Father's wrath that would have sent us to hell so that we might be saved through his work. His experience was like verse 3 in this psalm. The cords of death entangled him. The anguish of the grave came upon him. But because he suffered as a righteous man, he delivered us from death. The book of Acts, the apostle Peter speaks of that the father looked down upon the son. He did not abandon him to Sheol. He did not allow his holy one to see corruption. Why? Because he could be raised to eternal life because of his righteousness, because of what he suffered as the righteous one. So Christ is the helper of the helpless. He is the one who gives life because he fulfilled his vows to the Lord. He is the righteous one, and in him and in him alone we are saved. Recount the mighty deeds of God in Christ. And then finally, render heartfelt worship and thankful obedience. In light of the gospel, our response needs to be similar to that of the psalmist in verse 12. How can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? But just because the debt that we owe our God is not payable, that does not mean that we are to make any contribution that we can in order to serve the Lord. And that is is the heart uh, uh, that has been transformed by Christ. I know that I can't repay God for all of his kindness to me. But that doesn't mean that I should not make any contribution that I, stu- that I still can. Colossians chapter 1 highlights this for us. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would be, because of the Spirit, because of what Christ has done, fully pleasing to the Lord in their zeal for good works. We need to understand that and remember it, that we are to render heartfelt worship and thankful obedience. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. That would be in the context of Old Testament worship. That's a thank offering, which would have been a a cup of wine that was poured out at the altar. 
And so when we gather around the table, we are lifting up the cup of salvation, remembering Jesus Christ, remembering his blood that was poured out on the altar of God so that every sin might be wiped clean. And remember his work for us in that way. But then we go forth and we remember that our thank offering to God is that our lives would be poured out as a thank offering to the Lord for his kindness to us. And it is our great joy to do so because what Christ does is he restores us to the purpose of our creation, that we were all created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So we lift up the cup of salvation in heartfelt worship. And then we also live our lives rendering thankful obedience. Verse 16 is so wonderfully put. I am your servant. We might translate this, I am your house-born slave, where it says, the son of your maidservant. I am your house-born slave, for you have freed me from my chains. See, that is the Christian life. God has set us free. He has set us free from our chains. He has liberated us in such a way that it's so wonderful that we could say, I would rather be the servant of the Lord in his house than return to our former lives. But God loves us so much that he made us his child because of our elder brother, our, right, our righteous elder brother, Jesus Christ, who goes before us and joins us to God as we have faith in him. So the cry of the psalmist when he says, O Lord, I am your servant. Do you notice the other place in the psalm where it says, O Lord? It's at the beginning in verse 4. O Lord, have mercy. And then in verse 16, he ends by saying, O Lord, I am your servant. A saved and a liberated heart becomes a joyfully submitted heart. So we render heartfelt worship and thankful obedience. So we revere the God who loves us. We remember our helpless state of sin. We rejoice in the God who saves us. We rest in grace. We recount the work of Christ. And we render heartfelt worship and thankful obedience. All for him and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time together as we gather around your table, remembering your Son and his work for us. In Christ's name, amen. If you would